The cultural crimes, as I call them, are that girls are not allowed to get married to whoever they want. But a girl just isn't celebrated. She's seen as almost a nuisance, a hindrance, a failure. Nina. Hi. Uh, I'd like to read out three headlines I've found about you. Um, usually, I go straight in with a very quick question. But I didn't even know where to start with this. So I'm just going to read them out and I'm just going to let you take it okay. from the start, where you want to go. Sure. So, why my parents tried to kill me. I survived an honour killing attack. I was forced into an arranged marriage as a child. So they're, they're for three thumbnail headlines that jumped out on the internet almost preceding you. Mm. Where do you want to start to talk about those things? How about we start with that people never expect a person like me or to speak like me to have suffered any kind of trauma or to have endured the traumas that I have, including modern day slavery, which I was talking about yesterday. Um, people have this conception in their head, they have this perception and they have this sort of idealism that someone who's gone through trauma is a weak, you know, um, not put together person and often it's the put together people that have this front and that's what I had, not now, but I had a face for work, I had a face for um, the doctors, I had a face for school, but inside the house I was literally too invisible, too quiet, too unseen and that was forced upon me because I was born a girl. So are you saying you learned to act in a way externally to show strength as a front to cope with all the pain you suffered? Yeah, I think certain places are escapisms for people, like school was a bit of an escape, although I was bullied at school as well because I was an Indian person in a very white British area. Um, but regardless of that, it was an escape from the four walls in which I was constantly held, my room. You know, and I describe my room differently to the my parents' room or my brother's room because, you know, my mother, she had this really lush, beautiful, deep carpet. And I remember my little six-year-old toes would like really scrunch into the carpet because it felt so good. Um, and she had soft furnishings. My brother had things in his room and the other brother had this beautifully painted door. It was glossy. It was nice and nice to touch. Whereas my room was different shades of grey. It was bare. My bed had a mattress and the divan at the bottom, it was a bed put together, but I had a little box for my clothes, I didn't have any toys. So when you would almost come out of this colourful house, you'd go into my room into a different portal almost, and it would be a very dark little space. But when I would come out and go to school, it was a different kind of area, different people. When I got older and I went to work again, different people. So you learn to adapt and show the world what they want to see as well. I could, didn't think I could bring forward my issues or problems because I really felt nobody would want to help. So you said earlier, because I was a girl. Yeah. So what happened to you because you're a girl? Well, if you're born a girl in my culture, you're not wanted. And people say, well, that was then, because, you know, obviously I said to you, I'm 53 now. But it's still the case. It still happens. You know, I've had over 14,000 messages since April asking for help. And a lot of them are girls, young girls in the United Kingdom. Not in India, not in America, not in China, not in a third world country as it's called. They're in the United Kingdom. 
and it's because they're born girls and they are sometimes the eldest girl, the middle or the youngest. It doesn't matter where you fall in rank with your siblings. It's because you are born of that gender. And in my culture, they celebrate boys, they give out sweets, there's parties, huge parties. But when a girl's born, it's a very solemn affair. That doesn't make any sense to me, especially if you've got three boys and one girl. You've got your boys. Is it not a celebration to have a girl? I have a boy and a girl and I love having a girl and I've got my boy and I've got my girl. Why can't, I don't want to, I don't understand your culture so this is a bit of a naive question but sometimes that helps. Why can't you celebrate the girl because you've got the boys? I don't think you're meant to understand if I'm being honest and, and direct. As in they don't want me to know? You're not meant to get it because you don't have that mentality. But when you are born of that mentality and that culture, and I talk about culture when I say culture should be about the food, it should be about the celebrations, the colourfulness of, you know, India maybe bringing forward, because my parents are Indian. But the cultural sort of crimes, as I call them, are that girls are not allowed to get married to whoever they want. Boys aren't either a lot of the time. There's certain codes of conduct you follow. But a girl just isn't celebrated. She's seen as almost a nuisance, a hindrance, a failure that another boy wasn't born. And incidentally, I'm the youngest of two elder brothers that's, you know, that were born before me. So youngest of three, but my parents weren't happy. In fact, I was told by an aunt that when I was in my buggy, my pushchair, my mother forbade and my, and my father stopped everyone touching me because they were really certain that I had some sort of bad entity living within me, almost like, um, a devil type thing or a witch type thing, but they believed I was evil. So if anyone touched me that they too would catch something from me. So they stopped and I stopped crying apparently after a few days um, and soiled myself and I, I left, I was left unchanged and unfed. But that kind of set the onus of me going forward, I believe. You know, I, I knew nobody was coming. I knew nobody cared. So can you remember the first time when you really felt that sense that you were really unloved? Yeah, I went through life as a six-year-old. I remember going back to six, you know, I was this girl kept in her room. I didn't speak to anyone, didn't make eye contact like we are now because it's not, not, it's frowned upon. I didn't speak at home, so I was um, non-verbal as I call it. I literally would come out to cook, clean, go to school, come back. If there were some guests, I would come bring them food. But that was normal, that was my normality. Just like maybe for you every Sunday, you had a lovely Sunday dinner with the family all around the table, that would have been your normality. Maybe playing football on a Sunday, your dad or mum, maybe one of them took you, that was your normality or rugby, whatever the case may be. But for me, this was my normality to be ignored, to be almost unseen. But it was when I got to 14, something happened that I would say I was almost like a little flower and we were all little flowers, you know, growing up, we're all children, very innocent. And I think slowly my petals were literally being picked off me with the things that were happening, but I didn't really understand. It's only when that flower was snapped in two and dropped, I realised I felt broken and I did completely feel crushed and broken. And what happened when you were 14? Um, my job, as I said, was to cook and, you know, clean for everybody. But at the age of 14, my father... He owned some pubs, so we always had alcohol in the house. So his friends would naturally come to our house on a Friday night after they'd been to the local pub. 
And, you know, they would drink a lot on Fridays or Saturdays and they would come back for food and they would come back to carry on their drinking because back then places didn't stay open um, very long. So he would come back and we don't say names to people, anybody that's older than us. We tend to say uncle or auntie, but they're not related at all. It's just a sign of respect. And um, this particular night, I just knew something was wrong. And I always talk about this inner feeling. We have this almost little person inside saying, stop, 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 stop. This is not a good thing. Or that little voice that's saying, I don't know, I'm not sure about this. And that particular night I came downstairs, I'd handed the food, you know, and I, my job was to wait with this huge tray. And I described this tray, it was like silver and white, and it was probably bigger than I was, but I would go in, put all the dishes on of the, onto the tray and take it away, clean up and go to bed. But this night they were taking a long time. Nobody was sort of saying, pick up the food. You know, my dad would normally say it, sometimes the others would say it. And when I did go in, my heart was sinking and sinking and sinking. And my father was the first person to literally grab my wrist. And when he did, I dropped the tray and he threw me on a low table and he was the first person to rape me. And I remember keeping my eyes shut tightly, but I was used to not having the ability to see, you know, because I was always told not to make eye contact, but I could tell who was who by the way they coughed, the way they almost moved in the room. And I was literally passed from person to person, thrown on the floor, sexually abused, raped, bitten um, and beaten. You know, it was a really quite savage, frenzied attack. And I just remember lying there and waking up in a bath of my own blood the next day because my mother woke me up. But I remember the first thing I thought was, I'm in so much trouble because there's so much mess in the room and the carpet's dirty. Not really giving myself an ounce of compassion or thought. You know what, first thing I was thinking about was, I've got to get that sorted, I've got to get it cleaned. But when it sunk in, what had happened, I didn't even understand about sex or these things because we didn't talk about it and often our cultural families don't talk about it. Still, it's awkward, it's difficult, you know, it's not even looked upon a normality, it's shunned upon. But I knew it was wrong, that's one thing I knew and I knew that I just wasn't the same person I was. I was a happy six-year-old growing up to that point because that's all I knew. But at this point, I just, I just didn't want to be around anymore. I was, I was literally, like I said, like that little flower broken. And when you say you didn't want to be around anymore, what do you mean by that? Normally, I would be happy to get to school. You know, I'd be the first one. And to be honest with you, on the way to school was probably my happiest childhood. My um, white British friends, they used to teach me songs from Top of the Pops because I wasn't allowed to watch. And the only way I could hear the television was by pressing my ear against the door that we had but my father hadn't he'd put the cheapest wooden door in my room and it was full of splinters and I would get splinters in my hair my face would be scratched up because I was forcing my ear against the door all the time so that little walk she would tell me about the programs that had come on television and she would sing me the songs and I stopped doing that I stopped being even interested in what she was telling me and I became almost zombified where at school I wasn't the person at the front of the um, rows on the front row put my hand up I was the person at the back and I I've said it before I was sometimes sitting on the floor crying but the teachers never stopped to say what's wrong Nina what's happened you've gone from a really able student to just giving up so did you tell anyone 
I felt I couldn't. I felt I was not important enough for anyone to listen. And I think I tell my story because I want teachers out there to look at the students they have. I want parents of the children that drop their kids to school to look at the other children that don't have a parent with them so that they can sometimes see something and, and ask that child, are you okay? No one saw anything in you. No one said, are you okay? No one. No, if someone had asked me, are you okay? Just those few words, I was desperate to say no. You know, I was barely but hanging no on. no one even said those words? No. no one, not your teachers, not your friends, no one? No one. How does that make you feel? It made me believe everything my parents had told me. What they said? What they said about me being unimportant, an evil spirit, you know, the way they had created such low self-worth, it made me believe that I was nothing, that I was just literally nothing. And I started to really hate who I was. Have you ever spoken to your dad about this? If I was to sit in a room like we're sitting now, my father would go for my throat first, probably with a sword, because I'm still being hunted, I'm still receiving death threats and... From your family? From my family and other people, but we're talking about my family, mm. so yes. But the highest form of retaining honour is to cut your head off, and that's what he wants to do. He said it very clearly. Wow. How does that make you feel, knowing he he's after you? and Do you I, think he, he would actually do that? Oh, if he was, he, yeah, I've, I, he would, he would if he could. He would cut your head off? He would try, yeah. I was at an event yesterday, I had two close protection people with me. One's an ex-MMA fighter, the other's a jiu-jitsu champion, but they both stand with me so that nobody can come near me. Um, so I care about myself. I've got three wonderful children, I don't want to be killed, but as wishy-washy as it might sound, I believe I'm protected by a higher source. I'm here for a reason I've gone through everything I've gone through for a purpose. Well, I'd love to talk about that um, in a moment because I, I get this sense about you that that's how you've seen the meaning of what's happened to you. Um, have you not reported your dad to the police? So currently I am fighting. I'm on two boards at Scotland Yard with the Met Police. I, I'm on a board which is called the Scrutiny Panel, which I can't discuss. Um, but the other you ones, know, making saying that makes me want to ask you about that. It probably does. <laughs> I, I really can't discuss it. They're probably listening on my phone. It's a thing. <laughs> um, but the other one I'm on is I represent the community. I represent all the people that come to my non-profit and I bring their voice forward of how the police are failing them. And I've so have you reported this to the police? So I've stood in Scotland Yard and said, do something. I've stood in Leicestershire Police Station, which was literally three miles away from my where I, it all happened and my parents still live. And I've said to them all, do something. I've stood in Cambridgeshire Police and said, do something. So you've told them this? I have gone to that many police stations to report it. But, I mean, later on in my story, you'll see that I did end up at a police station. I was completely ignored because it's a difficult conversation, right? Nobody wants to have it. It's Why a, is it difficult? Because it's cultural and it, politically they don't want no, to but isn't, isn't law the law? The law doesn't protect victims or survivors. How, how can it be cultural to rape? Recently, there's a law... Um, that's, that's bullshit. I think it's two, three days ago, something came out on the news saying that they're no, they've got a backlog of people in prisons. So anybody that's a sex offender or something like that will not go to jail. How? There's no room. So those people stay on the streets and continue to do what they do. Why wouldn't they? They're not being punished. They're not being held accountable. Well, I can't speak for you. Mm. 
but I would rather be murdered than raped. So what about you? Because I see surely rape is more serious than murder, is it not? I speak out because I don't want anyone to feel what I felt. I think that answers that. Does it? Yeah, I speak out. If you think I'm not after justice, I'm very much after justice. Um, Sadly, the CPS, which is a crime prosecution service, have told me that the only thing I can charge... So, so sorry, just to be clear, yeah. and sorry if I'm being a bit no, explicit, be just tell me. I'll be me. You being raped by eight men is not worthy of putting, at least investigating into that crime. It's my word against theirs. I was a child. I was a minor. There's so many reasons. You have to understand the police only do what the law tell them. So where do you go? You go to Parliament, which is where I go all the time, to be a nuisance, as they call it. But for me, I'm telling my truth, asking for change. So are some people not believing your story? Is that what you're saying? It's because the law says after two years you can't press charges. Right. That's the major default system. And but I'm saying, aren't people like 20 years later now pressing charges against Russell Brand? They are, but that's because they're getting a solicitor or a lawyer or a barrister that's bending laws and truths and getting what they call justice. If I could do that, I would do that. I've got people that have come to me through and my you must be able to get some great lawyers. Change the, you change the law. Do you know what? I've I pitched a twen, 10, law, 10 very high-profile lawyers the other day, but I didn't pitch for myself. I pitched for a change in the law. But surely you getting justice is the best way to inspire everyone else, isn't it? The thing is, I'll, I'm happy to go to court. I would love for my father even to retaliate and say, I'm going to be on Rob's podcast and give my side of events. I would love him to do that, but he right. stays silent. I would love for my brothers to do that. I would love for my ex-partner to do that. And they all stay silent? They all stay silent. And, you know, I would love to go to court. I would love to press charges. I believe I deserve justice. Why don't I deserve justice? Of course I do. Um, but it's literally like banging your head against a brick wall sometimes and at some points your head starts to hurt. But I know that going forward, if I can't do anything for me, I can do something for those future generations. I can protect them. So I'm asking them to take the word honour out of a, a sentence because when you have the word honour killing, it's not regarded as a murder or attempted murder. So, I mean, this hasn't officially gone through, but I know the lawyers are working at it from the firm. that. Have, so an honour killing is legal, you're saying? No, it's not legal, but you are given certain considerations. What are, what are those? You, you serve less time. Because culturally you've been influenced. Again, I said, it's not supposed to make sense to us. It's just no. something we have to accept no, Yeah, sometimes. you can probably see yeah. that. It's frustrating. It's hurtful. But uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word frustrating. I have to use logic sometimes because I have to almost take the emotion out of everything and say, what can I do as opposed to what I can't Are do. Are you taking the emotion out of everything to protect yourself? No, I'm completely healed. Really? Mm, completely. Completely healed? Completely. I, yeah, I mean, you're jumping right forward, but I can take you there. Well, I'm allowed to. <laughs> this is my show. Yeah. Um, yeah, where should we go? There's definitely about five things of, of places I want to go in my head. Yeah, let's go there. Um, no, let's go back first, because I want to, like, as I said to you before we went live, in some ways this is a slightly left-field interview for me, yeah. but I actually don't think it ended up it will end up being but it just really felt right 
to do. Um, and, and I know that I could already tell when within the first five seconds I've met you how, you know, they, they say things make you or break you. And I could see that this has made you. But I just would like you to, to, to spend a couple of minutes just sharing the fucking horrific things that happened to sure. you so people can really understand this. And then maybe we can use our platform to help you get a bit of justice. It's very difficult just to go, oh, police's fault because they're drastically underfunded and I know people in the police. It probably is higher up than that. Um, But this makes me feel ashamed of our legal system. It's mine too. You know, I am born in this country and a lot of... I said our. (laughs) The comments on Ad Bible is, why don't you just kick them out of the country? But then the problem is still somewhere else. What do you mean, why don't... A lot of the comments on, you know, you saw, you said you saw me on Lad Bible, yeah. the interview, and I'm saying that a lot of the comments on some of my podcasts, including that one particularly. People are saying to kick you out of the country. To kick out the people like people like me out of the country so that it doesn't happen. But the issue then you've got hey? is... But the issue you've got then Where is, were you born? In Leicester. There you go. So <laughs> what do you mean people like you? Kick out everyone from Leicester. I, oh, I don't take it to heart. I just... No, I'm taking it to heart for you. <laughs> I just try and reiterate that if you even do that it's still happening somewhere else so surely the issue here is the word honor killing not who i am or where i'm from the word is honor killing which is another word for murder or attempted murder and we'll, should we go to the honor killing should we talk about that yeah because that sort of comes on yeah from let's there. do that when, so, when yeah. i w- when i went through this time of feeling completely broken um i lost interest as i said and i became a problem you lost interest in what in, in life right in living um and my parents um, realised that you know I was changing too, but I realised as well that I was pregnant from that night of oh the God. rape. Um, obviously, I don't know whose baby, I didn't know, but I just knew that I was pregnant, and I had to tell my mother, which was a really difficult conversation, which led to me being beaten because she was angry at you. Anger, the anger that she was projecting upon me was so insanely horrific that I didn't know whether I would actually come out of that beating the way she was. She was really, really mad. And um, to cut a long story short, my father and mother took me somewhere. I had an abortion. And I always talk about this in particular because I remember everything. I'm one of those people that sometimes remembers every detail or no detail. It's just the way my mind works. But I remember getting there. I remember the sort of beds that we had to lie on. They were very clinical. I remember the colours that everyone was wearing, the gowns that people were wearing, you know, the staff, what they are wearing. I remember it was in the countryside. I believe it was in the West Midlands. But what I remember most is after the procedure, this lady came to hand me a cup of tea. And it's such an important part of my story, this, because she handed me the cup of tea and there was a biscuit. And I thought, no one gives me tea. No one gives me biscuits. What's going on? But she touched me, Rob. And that was the first time I'd had a human interaction of someone touching me. And she brushed my hair back. And that little bit of kindness, it changed my whole perception of who I was. That how can I be so bad? She's just touched me. She hasn't caught anything. How evil can I be? You know, to have that interaction. So some people might not understand what a tiny word, a tiny action, just a touch on the arm, just a question, are you okay? What can I do? How far that can go for someone's whole future, whole life. And I still carry that from the age of 15 forwards. But when I did get home, my parents obviously were worried about me having an arranged marriage because I was no longer a virgin, obviously. The fact I'd had an abortion, 
they were thinking about sending me to India to kill me or for me to marry an older man. How did you find out that they were they thinking They were discussing all of this so in the car. So you just in front of you? I was in the back of the car. I was kind of woozy because I think I was still under sedation. You know, they give you all of these mm. um, drugs and things and I was still kind of feeling not right. Um, I'm sitting in the back in a lot of internal pain, as you can imagine. Physical pain. I think mental pain was the worst. It always is. And I could hear them discussing me and my mother and father are bickering, saying, send her to your village and they'll get rid of her. And she's saying, send her to your village. There's a well. She can be thrown in the well. They were being very descriptive in what they wanted to do with me. And my father was worried because he's very respected in the community. He used to be an ex-professional wrestler back in the days of Daddy Haystacks, those sort of people. Mm. So he was well known. And they came to a decision that they would just work it out, you know, and... I remember my father, because I was one of those kids, as I said, always wanting to know what was going on. I was always huddled next to the door, listening, as I said. And I remember he was on the phone and he was so loud. He was almost animated saying, oh, I'm so happy. This is amazing. I'm so happy. And I thought, why does he keep using that word and what does it mean? And people think, of course you know what happy means. But when you've never really engaged in that feeling or that emotion, how do you know what it means? You know, for me, I didn't understand it. And it came to that I was called downstairs one day, a red veil was placed on my head, I was 15. You know, and I look back at the pictures and I think, God, you are so young, you are so scared, and you look like you're about to cry, you know? And I didn't know what was going on, but one of the men that continuously raped me and bitten me on that night was there with his wife. And my mother was there, my father, and my two brothers. And I knew that something was happening, but I didn't know what. You know, I couldn't really work it out because you're a child. I don't know what you were like at 15, but I was a very naive 15 year old. And um, it came to there was going to be a sham wedding. I was going to marry that man's son and I was going to be traded. My dad was going to pay him to take me away so that he could rape me whenever he wanted. I would be a sex slave and his wife would have a servant in the house to do all the cooking and cleaning. And that's exactly what happened at the age of 16, turning 17. I think I was just turning 17 or about to turn 17. I was living in this very small house in comparison to my father's large grand house. I had a room which is probably this size where you're sat. There was a tiny bed, like an open wardrobe. And I lived there for four years. And four years I had of being raped, um, waking up to my father not being on top of me. There was no door deliberately so we could do these things. And my mother-in-law, and I always say that, you know what, people joke about the in-laws, but it's a real thing, especially in my culture, where they are very abusive, mentally abusive, physically abusive. But they would take my money, they held my passport. And this is a form of modern-day slavery, again, that people don't recognise, just as I was that six-year-old in my room, not able to communicate or talk to anyone, there for a purpose. And I was literally told to work, bring the money back, cook, clean, and please my father-in-law. And I was disgusted at myself. You know, by the end of these four years, I developed this bad association with food, which I already had, admittedly, but it got worse because, and I do get upset and I can't help it, and I'm not sure why I get so upset at this point, considering everything that's happened. But literally, I would cook, and my mother-in-law would take my plate of food, throw it into the bin, and then shove my head into the bin and tell me, If I wanted to eat, I could eat out of the dustbin. And it was that almost bulliness that she had, you know, that sort of way of making me feel 
even less invisible than I already felt. And I used to take bits out of the bin out of fear and partly because I was hungry. And then I thought, I just don't want to eat anymore. Because you get to a point where you think, this isn't worth it. It's just not worth it. But I was so down, so depressed. Mentally, I'd given up. I had the best job. I'd gone to a large corporation, started off as a clerical assistant and thought, nobody knows me here. Nobody knows my story. I'm just Nina to them. They don't know who I am. I can be whoever I want here. And I want to do really well because I want my in-laws to be happy with the money I bring in because clerical assistants don't get paid a lot. Maybe they'll leave me alone if I bring more money in. So what I did was I would hang out at the executive floor where nobody was supposed to go, but I'd, I had that in me to go there and I would hang out at the coffee machine, not having a clue what to do, no money to put in because my money was all kept from me. And once director came forward, he's a marketing director, and he said, what are you after? Do you not know how to use the machine? I said, I'm after a job. And I just said it, because I had nothing to lose. And I think when you're in a position where you have nothing to lose, you just say things. Worst thing they would say is no. I've taught my kids what's the worst thing that will happen is a no. And he gave me a job, and I was the first Indian, Asian person of colour, whatever you want to call it, um, manager at the age of 17 to work in that whole corporation. And I wasn't treating people like they were my employees, like a lot of the other managers were, I was treating them as part of my team because I knew if they were treated in that way, I had a way of nurturing, a way of helping them to see the best in themselves. And we all did exceptionally well. And we were like one of the best teams in the whole of the co whole corporation. And we were well known for it. But exactly when I would go home, I, I would change again. I would become this meek person. As I was saying at the beginning, you never really know what's going on behind closed doors. It's only when I had to get a second job because the money wasn't enough for these people. They were greedy. I went to sell kitchens on the phone and I loved it because I love talking to people. I thought it was the easiest job out, making appointments, getting paid for it. Why not? I could do that. And, you know, I would have a good laugh, made a lot of friends there. But one of the friends I made was an Indian girl and she was dating a Nigerian guy. And she said to me, why do your ankles bleed? I've noticed. Because a lot of people won't say anything, obviously, because they don't want me to feel, you to feel awkward or they don't know what to say. But she just said it. And I said, my father-in-law, he ties me up with metal coat hangers. And I couldn't believe I opened up and told her. But again, it's like I said, sometimes you just want someone to say, what's wrong? How can I help? And it was like opening a can of worms. I couldn't stop talking. And I started telling her what they've been doing. And she was horrified. Being from my own culture, not judging me, not stigmatizing me. She gave me hope. She said, go home. And people say, why would you go home after that's where you've been raped, that's where you've been treated badly? But where was I supposed to go? You know, you don't know where else you can go. I was 21 at this age, but I thought, I can't live on my own. It's not seen in my culture to do those things. You know, I'm going to be struck off or they're going to come and find me. So I'm going to go home and my father and mother will love me, just like my friend told me, because I was quite naive in that sense. I was quite easily led in that way. And I went home and I remember it really clearly. I left my in-laws and I looked at my father-in-law, actually looked at him and I never looked at him in the face as though to say, I will never see you again. You can't hurt me again. And I went to work, got on the bus. I ended up at my mum and dad's with so much hope because I just was almost that six-year-old girl, that broken 14-year-old girl that just needed love. Like your kids sometimes when they need a hug, they come to daddy, yeah? That's what I needed. But my father, he grabbed me and, sorry, 
took me to the same room where I was raped. Just started to beat me. And I wasn't very tall. I wasn't very big. And it was almost like they had this predetermined decision they'd made to kill me. I'd been beaten so many times, but not like this way. And my brother was there. I've got two brothers. It was my eldest brother. And he's like six foot something. And he broke my arm. He broke my jaw. And they just would not stop beating and punching. And eventually I fell down. I remember just collapsing. And that's when the stamping started and the kicking. And my father held his foot against my throat. And um, I believe then I just literally left my body because I felt nothing. I remember looking back at myself like this crumpled little doll, this rag doll just lying there and saying, that's it, that's it, Nina. But something, and I'm not religious, I'll be honest, but something was saying, not yet, it's not your time yet. And um, I remember going back in that body, but feeling so numb, so not even acknowledging that I was being kicked or stamped upon. And I was watching blood literally trickle off my face into the carpet and thinking, I don't like this carpet. My dad's always said it's called Axminster and I do not like this carpet. And I was talking to myself about something completely different, like almost taking myself out of that place. And then I passed out. And I passed out and came to, and my other brother had come in and said, don't do it here, we'll get caught, we'll take her to India and kill her there. And I lay there for days, and I always say three, because three is my number, but I have no idea what, how long I lay there. But somebody opened the door, and she was a friend of my mother's, and again, we call her auntie, but she's not an aunt. And she said, they're taking you to India on Sunday, and I thought, I have no idea what day, is it Sunday today? I don't know. And I knew I had to get out. I was either going to get out, or I was just going to give up. And I said, do I want to live? And I, was, I have these internal conversations. I still have them. You know, driving along, I'll have them on my own. Full conversation. And I said, no, I want to live. I didn't know why, but I wanted to live. And I tried to get up on my hands and knees like a baby almost, but I couldn't. You know, my arm was broken. It was impossible. So I started to pull my body along. And I broke the whole escape route down. You know, that if I can get to this door and reach the doorknob I can then get to the, the landing to the kitchen then from the kitchen to the outside and that's what I did and I was being so quiet in the house because they're all angry people if they knew what I'm doing they would just chop me up and put me under the floorboards because I'd been told so many times that's what they were going to do and I guarantee there are houses across the world in the United Kingdom especially where there are babies buried in gardens and children buried in gardens because that's what my culture would have done to them. I know that for a fact. Um, but I got to my garden fence and my dad had this obsession with this stupid tall fence and I thought, I, I'm going to give up. I can't do this. And people always say, why do you talk about this? And How stupid are you? But we had this Alsatian dog and she was like my first warmth. You know, when I say first warmth, I mean my first experience of something warm in my life. Um, she would sometimes lay on me, almost literally on me, in nights when it was cold. I didn't have a duvet, but I had her. And she looked at me and I thought, you're going to start barking, you're going to give me away, and I do not want you to give me away, please. And I was literally saying to her, please, not now, not now. And I touched her little wet nose and I was saying, please don't. And she didn't, she didn't bark. But she looked up and I thought, this is a sign that I can do it. And I was saying, you know, it takes one person, just one person, so you've got this, you can do this. And that was my sign to say go. 
And I did get over the fence and my father didn't find me. I crashed, I literally collapsed in a park opposite, which was a tiny park of some bushes. And I guess somebody was protecting me somewhere because I made it to a taxi rank. But from the taxi rank, I made it to my friends. They didn't open the door. And that's when I ended up in the police station in Market Harbour. And his name was PCP. I'm going to call him out. And he was a really jolly kind of policeman, you know, the type you see on cartoons. And I collapsed. I couldn't stand any longer. I think I'd been going on some sort of buzz type of adrenaline thing and I just had it no longer and I'd given up. I collapsed on the floor and he helped me up and the taxi driver helped me up into a chair. Started to take photos, started to get this big pad out, filling it out. And then when I got to the question, how did this happen? What happened? And I said, it's an attempted honour killing. My parents tried to kill me because I left an arranged marriage. You went, Shh, no, stop. All right, let's get you to the, um, I know, let's get you to the hospital in Kettering. And I thought, no, I don't want to go to Kettering. I want you to listen to what I've got to tell you. I got to Kettering Hospital, and you've heard me say this before, I'm sure. I lay in a, a ward with probably six, I was probably six beds to the ward. I was probably the sixth bed. People would come and go. Their families would come and go. They would be seen by the nurses. They would be seen by the doctors and spoken to. But me, being me, was again not seen, not heard, not questioned. The file would be thrown down in almost disgust because it had this sticky tab on it saying honour killing. It was almost like there was something wrong with me that I was carrying this evil entity again. And I didn't question anyone because no one questioned me. So who was I to ask a question? And that's what led me then to leaving there and ending up in a relationship with somebody I shouldn't have been with. But I went back to my friend's house. She had separated with her partner, who was the Nigerian guy. And I ended up with him and staying there for 23 years and enduring again horrific domestic violence to a level where, yes, I've had three amazing children my daughter, who I know is sat here, was born out of rape because I wasn't in a relationship with this man. He'd rented his room to me, but got me drunk by telling me something was coke and it wasn't. And the next thing I knew I was pregnant, but because I had such low self-worth, I didn't question it. I thought maybe that's how it is. I didn't know about love. I didn't know about relationships and sitting with a person, going out for a drink and having something nice to eat and courting. I didn't know about those things. So to me, it was maybe this is how it's supposed to be. But she changed my life. And I know that when you had your children, they would have changed your whole life. You want to do things for them. And I was determined to give her everything that I hadn't had because not only had my mother taught me how not to be a mother, she taught me what I didn't get. I knew what I didn't get. So I decided she would go to independent schooling. She would have everything that I didn't get. She would never question if she had any self-worth. Obviously, I don't have control over that. She does. But I know I would do my bit. And I didn't focus on the bad. I focused on the good again. Did you report your ex-partner to the police? I didn't report anybody. Because first time I'd entered the police station, they taught me that no one listens. So I just regarded the police as somebody that wasn't ever going to help me. I had no faith. To be honest with you, I still have no faith. Mm. It's building slowly. I'd say it's on probably 0.5%. Wow. But I have no faith in the police. The British police, to me, are pointless. I think we'd be better off with the army taking over. Really? 
that's another subject but that's, mm. that's my own personal opinion from my experiences and they know I work and I'm sure they'll watch things because they do but it's just the way it is that's how I feel so no I never reported him and the domestic violence was so serious that my pillow was set on fire as I was sleeping and my daughter put it out and then it happened again and when I asked my partner why have you done this he said that it was because he wanted to end everything I didn't understand and people don't understand when they're in a bad situation or a relationship or even a work job type of situation they don't understand that they are in it you can't see so your, your sense of normality is so deranged it's so distorted you don't see what's right in front of you until mm. you step away and then look back but through that relationship I lost a baby I gave birth to my third child called Tyler and that was because I was thrown down the stairs when I was heavily pregnant and by the time I got to Kettering um, station he he was born but he died very shortly after birth and you know I wouldn't wish that upon anyone and by this stage I had bought properties I'd developed businesses um, and by the end of it I had several businesses and I was worth way over millions but what I didn't have was any sense of knowing who I was any happiness or real love the only love I had was for my children and the only love I received was from them but at the end of it life forced me to leave a situation where so many women will not or men won't how did you get how did you escape um, my daughter saved my life basically she received a picture message from her father saying I'm sorry and her first question to him is what have you done you know she was at university 200 miles away from home and I can't imagine how she felt I'll be honest but she started ringing the phones because the picture was of me sleeping on a sofa and I didn't sleep because of various reasons like the pillow being set on fire because we were locked in our rooms and then unlocked you know there was a control thing going on and it was just me and my youngest son at this time because my middle one I'd sent to boarding school, my daughter was at university. So she knew there was something seriously wrong. My youngest son had developed an illness um, through the stress of what was going on. And um, he was slumped on a table, like just slumped in a very awkward position. So she knew there was something serious. She didn't call the police and people say, why didn't you call the police? But you, when you're in that position, you do what feels right, I guess. I don't know if the police would have got there in time, but she woke me up. And when she woke me up, my throat was really dry. And um, I think the body holds memories like that. Sometimes when I get super upset, I lose my voice almost. And when I went to the kitchen to get a glass of water like the one there, I, I looked and I saw all the taps. He turned all the taps on the cooker on and left the whole house like that. And the house was full of gas. And people say, you can't die from that. But you can. You know, you, you can get carbon monoxide poisoning. If I'd got up later on and put a switch on, the whole house would have exploded. And my son spoke up at school and said he'd had enough. He'd had enough of me being treated the way I'd been treated. He'd had enough of his mistreatment, you know, the way he was treated. He was treated so badly. And he said that he really couldn't take it anymore. And people think domestic violence affects one person. It affects the whole family, sometimes the extended family. It doesn't affect just one person. It doesn't affect me on my own. It affects my children. And, and people don't understand that. So I try and tell people, look, if you're in a situation, do it for your kids. If you think you're staying there for the kids, leave for the kids because it's important for them. It messes them up and it really does. You know, I always joke and say I'm going to write a book about how I fucked my kid's life up, but I think I'm actually going to do it. So that maybe some of the parents can look back and say, I'm not going to make that mistake. So um, 
How do you feel talking about this, you know, with your daughter being here? Um, she knows I'm a very honest person. I was taught never to lie as a kid, and I think that just continued with me. And I know that she knows the importance of her in my life, but she knows also that she's extremely loved. People sometimes say, how do you feel being a child of rape? She's never heard me say it in that way until recently because I called it out for what it was. I used to say you took advantage of me. But again, we protect people that we that have done us bad sometimes because it's a sort of a mechanism in our minds to not hold people accountable. And I never wanted to hold anyone accountable because I don't think I was worth it. But she copes, she's understanding and she, she knows she's loved regardless. And if anyone is in a situation where they're trapped in any abusive situation, how can they escape? I think the hardest thing to do is to ask for help. And But is that the only way to escape? That's the only way to escape. Yeah. Because I, they can come to me. My arms are open wide for anyone who's suffering from any kind of trauma. Like I said, I've had so many people come and my daughter sat there as well. And we have literally taken people from A, put them into a safe place and then help them find their own accommodation. And it doesn't matter who they are. We've had women with children. We've had men. You know, one guy, I moved from Canary Wharf somewhere else because he was in a really difficult situation as well. Mm. His life was very dependent on what was going on. So I, I totally understand that it's hard to ask, but when you know that there are people out there, and it's not just me, there's lots of people out there, they also don't want to trouble someone. You know, we have this mentality, I don't want to trouble anyone, I don't want to ask. It's so difficult. I find it difficult to ask sometimes. I need to ask for a lot more than I do. But it's good to ask as well, because you keep that flow of give and take going in the universe. It's just keeps it going, that cycle. Mm. So the best thing for someone to do is to acknowledge that they're going through something really bad themselves. Be honest with yourself, don't lie. And take that step. It takes a lot of courage, but it will change your life. Mm. Do you hate your father? I don't hate anyone. No, I don't. I love my father because... You love your father? I love him because if it wasn't for my father, I'd be sat here having this discussion. If he hadn't, if he taught me to ride a bike, a nice pretty bike, the way I used to imagine he would, I wouldn't learn to love unconditionally. I'll tell you, when I used to run down those stairs as a six-year-old to cook for him, I would make every little food that I made would be made with love and compassion because that was my way of giving my love to them and I thought that's the way you love. So I don't hate anyone because each person has taught me either how not to be or how to love unconditionally and that's a great lesson to bring forward to others. So um, let me ask you this. If you had the chance to go back to before your first memory of all this abuse and take it all away and live in a loving, conventionally loving household or keep your life experience how it's been, which one would you choose and why? Yeah, I used to, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, not said it here. Not said it here. <laughs> um, I used to think I wanted to be that boy that was sat two seats away from me in my French class because everyone loved him at school. There was this white British boy, really good looking, and I'd always be like, oh my God, he's so amazing. Everyone loves him. At work, I used to want to be this other white British man because he was respected. He held his own. He held his presence when he walked into the room. And I wanted to be my brothers because my mum used to wrap her arms around them and give them so much love. And when I got to 50, I realised I wanted to be no one but me. And how could I be anyone but me had I not been through those broken things that I've been through? I am literally that broken flower put together in a different way. And that's what makes me 
unique. We're all unique. But I love who I am from my heart because I've done nothing but be good to people. And yeah, people get fixated with social media and how you look on the outside, but I, you can fix that. You can do things. You can go to the gym. You can change things if you want to, but you still can be really unhappy inside. And I'm very blessed. I am very grateful for the love I hold for me inside because I can literally throw it at you, <laughs> throw it at everyone in the room. I've got surplus. Um, it's a magical place to be, I'll be completely honest. So for someone who's going through a very difficult time, I mean, I, I know people who are going through big challenges every day, but they're financially. Yeah. Um, but that can lead to all sorts of other issues. And they can't see in the moment that this is one of the best things that yeah, could happen to them. Definitely. They'll get the lesson two or three mm. years later when they look back. And it sounds like you've been able to get that lesson yeah. to look back at the age of 50 and go, actually, this was meant to be in the, the best thing to happen to me. How, what could you say that might help people understand that in the moment yeah. and not 10 years later? So I can, I can use my example, I guess. So I spoke out and we haven't discussed this. In 2015, I became homeless, completely homeless with my youngest son because we left we left that um, household. I was put into a safe house in Utterworth and it was a, it was not fit for any person to be living there. The walls were smeared with human feces, the carpet was sodden with urine. Nobody should have lived in that place that I was sent to. But because I was a millionaire on paper, I could not have help. So I ended up with nowhere. In that same year, the police came to find me to tell me that my father had abducted my sister. I didn't know about my sister. Her name's Julia. She was six years old. She's half Polish, half Indian. But to hide her because of the shame and the honour, my father abducted her and took her to India and sold her to human traffickers. Right? She's still missing. I don't know if I'm ever going to see her because where he left her, they harvest organs. The police went there, they couldn't bring her back. Because of Julia, I said I would speak out. Because of her, because of me, but because of the other Ninas and the other Julias out there that are still struggling and suffering. And this is going to come back to you now. When I decided I would speak out, I started writing 30 to 40 messages, between 20 and 40, let's be realistic, a day, depending on how much energy I had to people and saying, can I be on your podcast? And you said no. And lots of other people said no. But I did get on podcasts and the first podcast got one or two views. The second one got 20 views. But now my voice is completely different. I have a non-profit set up and I got to 97th and that one went viral. It, I told you it went to 25 million in three weeks and it went to 50 million now. It's over 50 million, but it went to that point when I was ready and I believe in divine timing. I could have given up when I got to 90 because I was tired of telling my story. It's, I've described it as I cut myself open so that other people can heal. This is truth, mm. my truth, it hurts. It hurts to sit here and say I was raped by my father, it hurts. But if I don't bring that truth forward by going back into that six-year-old self or 15-year-old self, I can't bring that emotion forward. I can't tell you, Rob, this is how it felt for me when I was that age. And someone else is feeling that right now. So I was going to give up at 90 
and I didn't because I had a reason not to give up. And that reason's not my children, it wasn't me. It was those other people that needed me. Those other people that were suffering and living my old life. So I carried on. And 97th proved to me that this, Nina, is your time. So I carried on. And you, full circle, said, do you want to be on my podcast? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. And one of the other people I asked is somebody in America. And I was in Los Angeles and in that podcast comes out today as well. Mm. So if you're in a situation, and I know about the mortgage prices and everything, people are struggling hugely because mm. I get a lot of people contacting me. And there's a lot of men, women that's quite suicidal. They've worked so hard to build mm. up this portfolio. They have to ride the wave. They have to, you have to find the inner strength. And on the days you feel weak, it's okay to feel weak. Mm. You know, I say in my weakest times, I found my strength. And we're supposed to be the strong person that never cries. And I never used to cry, never. But you know, if I feel that emotion, I allow it because it's just like laughing. It's just like crying is the same type of thing. It's an emotion. You've just got to allow it to come forward. Mm. So for those people out there that think that it's not going to happen, I want to tell them just to take a deep breath and understand that you've come so far. You've already overcome so many dif difficult situations to get to where you are. And a lot of people don't look at their journey. They look at the end result which is why I work with the people I work with. I'd remind them that they've had to turn up at the gym every day on the days they most didn't, didn't want to go. They've had to sometimes train with ligaments that are not completely healed. They've had to push through all those times to find their keep going. So the question to those people is, what is your keep going? Mm. So someone who's very wise uh, said to me that um, he believes that there is no situation or event or person that comes into your life that is all bad. Um, he believes that every event situation is neutral and it's humans that project onto it, or oh, I, I perceive that's good, I perceive that's bad. Um, he, you know, he, he has a saying in every stressing hides a blessing and he believes that every upside has a downside. And he taught me this probably 12 years ago and if I wanted to try and disprove that theory, I couldn't. And um, everywhere I go in life, I'm always amazed at the wisdom of the universe, whereby I think I catch myself thinking, oh, that's bad. And then I, can, I immediately get a message from the universe to say, no, 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 that's good. And, you know, like us being here now, I believe this is the best time. It wouldn't have been the right time before no, when you messaged. No. And it probably wasn't even me personally that said mm. the no, it would have been my manager, <laughs> <laughs> just to say. But, you know, the time is perfect. Divine uh, timing. Exactly. And, and so I agree with that. And I try and put this message out to the world because I think it really helps people. And the one thing that people will come back and say a lot to disprove me, oh, but rape isn't good. And I, I, like, I don't really know how to answer that question because I don't think rape is good. I, it's not I, good. No. It's a forced action on, upon an innocent But you person. have managed to turn it into good. And you even said you wouldn't change it no. if you had the chance to. How could I understand somebody who... You see, we never understand anyone else's feelings. I, you and me could have gone to the same pub, had the same meal and experienced it completely different. I'm just using that as a, mm. an example. How would I understand someone who's been sexually abused without having some experience of it myself? Mm. If, if my friend... So do you think that what you do now in your vocation, in your life's mission, you are meant to do? 
All right, there are a lot of people out there talking about what their mothers or sisters or friends have experienced, and that's why they've come forward calling themselves activists. I am an activist. I talk about my personal experiences, my lived experiences. There are so many large supported charities and like mine that have been for a long time, decades, trying to get this message of what an honor killing is. I, one woman, single-handedly did it within less than a year. Why? Because it's my lived experience mm. and I'm keeping it as truthful, as honest. I'm not painting around it to be politically correct. I'm not minimizing the pain. I'm bringing it forward so that others understand what it is because it's important. That's why. So why would I change that? I believe that I'm going to create ripples of change for future generations, maybe not even while I'm here. But I already know while I'm here, I'm doing some good. and. I believe life should be of service to others. It's, it's really my wealth. It's really mm. my happy place. Mm. So you said earlier, you're completely healed. I don't know if I believe you. Challenging. I mean, how, how, <laughs> well, how can you ever fully heal from that? I only admitted the rape to a friend of mine, who's actually my um, close protection two years ago. So I that was the first time you came first out? First time. I told my children because I said, There were so many bad things that had happened with their father and my old life. I didn't know how to tell them, but I knew I had to tell them. My daughter just held me. My youngest son held me. My middle son didn't really know what to do because he was seen as my protector. He sees himself as my protector. And it was almost like, how much more can my mum go through? But I, I've only just admitted to it. So some days I have bad days. I'm normal. I'm not. But do I hold on? Do I relive those dreams? You know, in my sleep, do I have those bad dreams? Do I relive those moments in my daily life? No. When I'm sat here, I take myself back there because, like I said, I have to. I have to. Do I want to? Not always. Mm. Do I know the value of doing it? Yes, I do. But do I love Nina? I completely love Nina. Do I love those people that have done those bad things? I've completely loved them. Have I forgiven them? Yes, I have. But I have not forgotten I do not condone any of their bad behavior. I know it's bad, and that's why I seek justice. But by holding hatred, or people say, don't you want revenge? What would that achieve for me? You know, I don't believe that fire and fire, it's metal and metal, you're not going to get anywhere. I, I, I see myself as that loving person. If I can do anything, I would love the hatred out of people, the fear out of people. I would create some sort of Um, compassion in the people that don't feel it with my love. So was there a moment or a process you went through which healed or moved on or forgave or let go or wherever that yeah. was? Yeah, I was forced to leave Leicestershire, which I really didn't want to because the police said they couldn't keep giving me non-molestation orders. I had to go. I was forced to leave and I didn't know where to go. My son, my son was studying at Leeds. My daughter was down south and I thought, oh, I'll go down south near my daughter because, you know, mums and girls sort of thing. <laughs> and I didn't want to go and it's hard, you know, moving up, rooting. You know, I, when I drive back up here, I'm like, oh, the country again. I'm <laughs> yeah. I love the country. There's a little sheep. Yeah. But um, and I used to wake up and see sheep every morning. Now I don't. Mm. So I moved and it was one of the best things because I became invisible in a good way. Mm. You're not invisible as in not people don't see me, but invisible that my community weren't seeing me. And this is what I do for others. I move them and I look at the demographics and I put them somewhere they can feel like they can go to a shop without treading on eggshells or panicking that someone's going to find them. 
and there's such a sense of freedom and I know I'm not saying this in a horrible way but you don't understand that not having that freedom you know I was literally jailed those four walls of my room were my prison and it's not like having that mental prison it was a real prison it was a physical prison and that exists for so many people I mean my car was tracked my ex-partner I my daughter you say why do you hold on to receipts you've just been to the co-op you know there's always a co-op around it I had to show the receipt and the timestamp of where I'd been when I'd been there so I wasn't free in the way I'm not now if I want to reach over and have that glass of water, I can. No one's going to stop me. Go on, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I can have a tea or coffee. I only went to Starbucks not long ago and I was so excited because they wrote my name on the cup. I was jumping up and down. The person that was with me walked out because he was embarrassed. And the girl behind the counter started jumping and I was like, yeah. Mm. But to me, the smallest things are huge. You know, I played pool for the first time and I won and I was like, oh, I'm quite good at this. Mm. My daughter and I were always doing, we call them sanity breaks, but we always do adventurous things where... To everyone else, it's just a normal thing. But for me, it's I'm almost like a 16-year-old living in this 50-year-old body. You know, I'm discovering new things. And there's so many people out there like me because they got married too young or they just never had that opportunity. You know, whether they're white British or Asian or whatever they're, whichever culture or community they're from. Mm. So I'm completely healed. I'm loving my life. And I just want everyone else to have this part of my life too. And how did you... Learn to love yourself. Oh, yeah, we were saying that, weren't we? Mm. Sorry, I get off track sometimes. That's all right. Um, I, so when that I moved... means I can do my job and just <laughs> gently move you. When I moved, um, I have to have green. As I said, you know, I'm a country girl at heart. So I, my garden's very long and it's just grass and I love it. And I ground and I started to kick my shoes off every day standing in the, on the grass. Someone said it was very healing. I thought, mm. why not try it? I love Mother Nature. And I changed the narrative. I rewrote unprogrammed and reprogrammed my mindset. I said to myself that I've never lied or cheated or stole as the scriptures tell you in any religious text you look at. I was almost preserved because everyone didn't let me do things. And I'm I'm a good person and I admitted that to myself. I, in my affirmations, decided I got to write these affirmations, nobody else. I was always called fat and ugly, always as a child, my ex-partner made me feel to the point where he said, if a man looks at you, you'll feel disgusted. And I couldn't even look at myself. I wouldn't even do my makeup in the house often. I don't know if my daughter remembers. I would do it in the small mirror in the car for work. I would literally do my makeup there so that I didn't even have to look at myself. But I got to decide and I said, look, Nina, you are so beautiful inside. You are good. So I started talking to myself that I am beautiful. My neighbours probably thought I was crazy because I had my arms out like this, screaming really loud. It got louder and louder as I got more confident. And I rewrote the fact that I was beautiful, that I was loved, that I am loved, and that I am love itself. Mm. And I changed my whole mindset. I think I'd always had a very acute business mindset because my father was a businessman and then I'd created businesses. But the key to life, I think, is self-love. Mm. And I've written that in my book. Mm. That the key to what's the book called? It's called Master Your Dreams, Live the No, Master Your Life, Live the Life of Your Dreams. I can't even get it right. <laughs> so it's Master Your Life, which I've done. I've mm. mastered my life. I've now started writing my own paragraphs, my own chapters, my own books, my own life. Mm. No one else is doing it. So other people's voices no longer interfere with mine. If I feel good about myself, I feel good. You can say, Oh God, what's she wearing? I don't care. It well, not people always me. say that about me, so I can't <laughs> say anything. But it wouldn't bother me. Yeah. It, but whereas a lot of people, they want to be on Instagram, they want to be liked, mm. they want the clicks. They can't even like the person sitting in the same room as them, but they can like some stranger mm. from, I don't know, Dubai because they're standing near some famous um, place and it looks good, you know? Mm. 
but they're not prepared to even give their friend a call from school, say, how are you doing? Are you okay? What's going on? Yeah. And you have to start with yourself. I love who I am. I mm. absolutely love me. And that's not egotistical. It's just pure faith in myself mm. and acceptance. And why have you decided around about this time to speak out about this so much? Well, like I said, it started with Julia. It started with not only the fact that she's um, suffered. How old, how old would she be now? Um, probably about 16. And do you still f uh, hold hope to find her? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, world is cruel sometimes. They People send me messages saying, oh, we know where she is. And then I've gone down that rabbit hole and not found her. And it's always disheartening. I know if she's alive because I work with a non-profit in uh, abroad called Youth Underground. I know kids that get trafficked have a very brainwashed mentality. So she would be brainwashed to not want to even communicate with me. And I don't mind that as long as she's alive. You know, my main concern is that she's alive. I know her mother's not been able to find her. Her mother went to Supreme Court in India, didn't get any anywhere either. Um, but yeah, you have to have faith. You have to never give up. And I, and I won't give up looking or having hope. Mm. And you're a millionaire. <laughs> so um, how did you manage to focus your energy in working and investing in assets and building your own company and um yeah because i think a lot of people wouldn't have been able to channel that energy that way yeah i was i mean i lost a lot of my assets i used to sell very expensive uh, machinery in the rag trade because you know the rag trades all around leicester where mm. i lost a lot of it because when i left i couldn't access my businesses because of my partner um, a non-molestation order means that he can't punch you, but he can hang around and stand behind you and intimidate you. Right. So again, the legal system is failing and that piece of paper is means he, nothing. Is he still causing you issues? Yeah, he still would like me to not be on this earth. Um, you know, a lot of people won't speak up because they get told they're lying. And there's that fear that no one's going to believe me. There's that stigma, that shame. Um, and he uses that, you know, he uses it as much as he can, but that's on him, not me. As I said, I'm mm. staying in my lane, he can do what he wants to do. I ended up leaving a seven bedroom house to him, which is like facing country and, and beautiful fields behind it. He ended up with everything in the house because I'd left with not anything. He ended up with one of the properties, but I still own a large property market harbour, which I wanted to convert into flats. Um, so I have a large part of it that's rented out to a restaurant cafe and I wanted to convert the top of it. I had this image in my head of what I would create because I want safe houses for women and children and even men if they need it. I want to be able to send them somewhere that I know the carpets are not sodden with urine and there's no human feces, that it's a, a nice safe place for them. So I thought I'd start with myself and my ideal dream in the future is to have these safe houses all around the world, especially the United Kingdom to start with, and two in each city so that if someone rings me, I'm not trying to look for a Premier Inn or somewhere to mm. stick them, but I can send them to one of Nina's safe houses and they will be looked after and somebody will give them a cup of tea with a biscuit and just say, how are you, and touch them and make them feel the way that lady had made me feel at 15. Mm. Um, but I do own a property. It, I bought it at 150000 I couldn't afford it back then. I'd said to the agent, can I rent it for a year? It was pigeon infested, but I could see, I always have a good view, a vision in my head of what something can look like. Mm. And I turned it around, I rented it, I ran a business from there and I realized that renting it out would be better. I paid my mortgage off on everything I ever owned. Yeah. Because I used to pay at the end of each year because I never liked the thought of owing somebody. You know, it was one of my traits. Mm. So it's mortgage-free, so I'm very blessed that I don't have the worry about um, 
paying a mortgage back and currently I've just got my planning permission come through. So that'll be my next project. And what about your business, your, your profession? So professionally, I'm a mindset coach. I'm mm. known as London's Life Coach, which I got from Clubhouse, which is where I met you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People gave me that name, so I trademarked it. I thought, yeah. I like this. And I'm known across the world as London's Life Coach. I coach UFC fighters, MMA fighters, boxers, some footballers. You, you can't say their names. A lot of them we were saying before, I can't say the names, but one of them's got a huge fight coming up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm... My Instagram's got pictures, you can go check it out. <laughs> but no, I, I, I love these guys because, you know, people don't see their struggle, their journey. And often these fighters have loads of people around them, like a family. They have a um, strike coach, they have someone who holds the pads, they mm. have somebody who looks after their food, their nutrition, someone that looks after their massage and body care. And then when they're in that cage, it's just them, mm. just that one person. And suddenly there's a lot of noise in just you. And that's when you start to self-sabotage, that's when the doubts come in. And also, it's not just then they need me, it's after the fight, which people don't understand. It's when they win a fight, they need me the most. Why? Because you build up, build up, build up, and this is a momentum of cutting weight and getting there, and all of these things are building up months and months and months, and then there's no heart, it's just nothing. Absolutely nothing, it cuts off. And then, what do I do now, comes in. Did that really happen, and what, what am I about? What else have I got in my life? A lot of the fighters don't have families around them. The ones that do are very blessed. And they do almost desensitize from engaging with people. You know, they don't trust people. So where do they go? And, and your mind's such a powerful mechanism that it can either make or break you. And even though you're at the height of your career, they can actually just drop down themselves, not because they've lost a fight, but because mentally they can't, they don't know where to go next. So it's getting them to understand, and this is not just for fighters, it's for anyone. You have to celebrate yourself. Any little celebration. I'm terrible at that. There you go. I mean, how many yeah. times have you actually said, you know what, Rob, you've done so much in this short space of time. I won, I won Woman of the Year this year. Wow. In House of Lords, I was given this amazing, I didn't know I was getting it. Congratulations. I, was, I haven't had time to celebrate it, but it doesn't mean I haven't acknowledged it. Mm. And that's the difference. If you can acknowledge it and say to yourself, you know what, I've done so much. It, it just makes you come back to the present time but as that, well. That makes me feel, I, I feel slightly embarrassed to do that. And then... Do you not feel you, you're worth that? Do you not feel your self-worth is of what you have created? I think I know in myself, you know, that I've got some skills and I'm competent in certain areas. But it's weird because people, a lot of people think I'm quite showy. But most of what I've done, I've not told or shared. I've, sh I've shared some cars and stuff and te teach people about all the properties. But that's safe for me because that's the, the CV of business required for people to know what I do yeah. for us to work together. Yeah. But, you know, I just got my 15th translation deal and it was one of the biggest. It was Russian. Uh, and, and like... It's quite a communist country, so it's like quite a big thing for yeah, my kind of content. Is, yeah. And it was one of the biggest advances. And I didn't even share it. And I thought about sharing it today, and I thought, nah. You know the reason it's so important to share is it encourages others. Mm. We, we almost have this very fine line of ego and, you know, wanting to be humble. I could tell you that you're a very humble person. Mm. But if you 
think it's ego, it's going to be egotistical because it's me, me, me. Yeah. But if you're doing it for the right reasons, it can never be seen as egotistical. Well, well, I know people like humble people, but they also are inspired by success. You know, I get a lot of criticism because I've got quite a lot of supercars. But I, I, if I drive in a nondescript car down my street where there's a local school, nothing happens. When I drive my Lamborghini, all the kids get really excited, and then like, and that isn't like that yeah. is an amazing yeah. feeling. But you've worked and, hard and that, for that's it. that's that's more fun than yeah. putting it on Instagram. Oh no, definitely. But you you know you have worked hard, and the thing about putting it on Instagram or any social media is it shows people where they too can be. Because mm. you weren't born with a Lamborghini, I'm no, sure. Your father no, didn't buy a Lamborghini. No, so, my dad tried, but he never got one. <laughs> so there yeah. you go. You know that in itself is a story that inspires and. A lot of people say, why do you do what you do? And I, I do it primarily for survivors and victims to come forward to know there's a place they can come to. I do it so that they know they're not alone. I do it so that they can see that she's done it. Mm. She's created something out of nothing. Seven years ago, I was homeless. I've had to redo everything. All this new stuff is my own. Mm. The jacket I'm wearing, I've bought this with my own money I've created. Mm. So for some, someone else to see that and say, you know, at 50, I'm too old, which I hear all the time. I'm 53, it's not old. Nah, you know? it's not old. But you, but you showing that might inspire me, might inspire my daughter. We love supercars, we love the way they hold the corners, we like the mm. gears and everything, we're car yeah. people. So there's gonna be somebody else out there who loves cars. And it's just that inspiration. If you're doing it for the right reasons, I don't think there's any harm in showing people where you were and where you've come to. Mm. I'm proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> so often when I, um, coach and mentor people financially they struggle with selling themselves you know mm. they struggle with putting their prices up or even charging um, and they really want to help especially people who you know not as extreme as you but if people have had a bit of trauma have low self-worth have had a um, maybe some abuse they f they love helping people but they find it really hard to charge do you feel a bit of that? Do you love helping people so much that you, you find it hard to charge? Or have you figured that part out? And what would you say to people? From from a mindset coach, no. Because my first client, who I can't name, who has a big fight coming up, he sent me money. And he said, this because I said, I can't keep doing this for free. Because I couldn't. And he showed me my worth, which is quite a bit per So he hour. sent you a big lump? So he sent me a lump. and it Was, was it a lot to you? It was a lot to yeah. me, yeah, it would be a lot to, I think, most people, to be honest yeah. with you. But he put that precedence, he, he set that right. that line of... So because you'd helped someone, he showed... And I, I believe yeah. what you give out is going to come back to you anyway. You know, if you do good for people, it's going to always come back to you, and it did. Yeah, but it love doesn't me. pay your mortgage. But love doesn't pay <laughs> your mortgage, no. And, and you have to understand that if you don't hold yourself or regard your... Whatever, whatever you're offering, if you don't regard it highly, yes. then you're going to attract those people that are not going to yes. regard you highly. Yes. So why? It's all very well. Sorry to jump in, yeah, but this right. is a great discussion. It's all very well having faith in the universe and keep helping people because you know it will come back to you, and in some ways it will. But you still have to see the signs that you've got to charge for your yeah. your work. I mean, my work was paying for my kids' uni because he was studying to be a doctor. He's graduated now, and you know, helping out my daughter every now and then, or doing little things like that. And paying my bills but now I'm focused on a different kind of mindset you know I want to earn so much more money that I've got 33.3 million in my head always always everywhere I go it's in my head because that's going to help me help 33.3 million people right. because the more money you have the more you can give the more you can help and especially in my situation because I 
Um, I don't have any sponsors, so if there's a sponsor out there that wants to sponsor me, go ahead. Uh, but well, I, what's your website? Let's shout it out. Oh, it's just my name.com. Spell Nina. it because it's not uh, that easy spell to it. spell. Okay, no, so it's N I N A A O U I L K dot com. Yeah. Nina Olk. The good thing about. I'm Googleable, you know. Well the, well, the good thing is, no, not many other names <laughs> like that, but it's. No, just, I know. Yeah. That's not why I'm Googleable. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, but no, the point is that you have to hold yourself. Other people say, well, how do you meet famous people, you're always with somebody who's well-known. And I'm like, well, you attract that, mm. but you hold yourself highly, you will meet those kind of people of caliber. Not everyone who's famous or on television is worth meeting either, but you will meet mm, the right yeah. people if you hold yourself in that in that sense. If, if you're walking around and you're quite meek and you said people find it hard to introduce themselves, in my book, I say it's in the first seven seconds you either impress someone or you don't. And I have to work harder when I go to network. But you were very um, confident coming in here. You owned this room when you oh, came thank in. thank you. So yeah, be did. the Nina show then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I, I love meeting people for the first time, but I'm always a bit nervous, no matter who they are, whether they're, you know, God tier, your ideal guest, or just a normal human or anything in between. I'm always, your daughter will tell you that because I was, she, I'm like, oh, hello. And I couldn't work out whether it was you. Well, we sound the same. Or, she could have done the interview yeah. for me. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I'm Celeste. And Nina's there. And so, um, yeah, but you didn't have, have that at all. I'm, I'm always nervous when I meet people. But I bring love into a room, hopefully. That's mm. what I hope to do because that's what I'm projecting. It's like I say, if I was had any job, it would be writing people love letters, say, Rob, read this letter. This is how I see you. When you read it, you literally... Put that out well, what a great business idea. Oh, I've, I've um, got loveletters.com you already. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write a letter. Who mm. wants to buy one? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, like like you said about your, in, um, I was going to say incident, more like your first sign of love when someone gave you a tea and um, stroked your hair. Kindness. Yeah, I, I can remember certain things where people, for me, when they don't need to show kindness and love, but they do, I always remember those moments. I remember a competitor, he just let us take him out for lunch and the whole day he just sat back and just shared everything he did. He went into, he had a lot of difficulties. People didn't like him. I love him yeah. because he gave me that time, especially as we were like, I, I was a bit cheeky. I messaged him and said, look, I'm setting up in competition, but I just think it's respectful to let you know. And he really admired that. And he said, most people don't do that. He said, mm. come to the offices for a day. Look at all my supercars, ask me anything you like. Nice. And yeah, I, I, th those, if you, I think there's something in, if you can be the purveyor of that, i.e. if you can go around making those experiences for people, I mean, it's an amazing thing to do, but there's a, definitely a business in that. I, mean, I did a talk in London yesterday. It's one of it's one of my first charitable sort of talks that I've done and uh, there was a queue right outside, you know, to get in. It was about modern day slavery, obviously I was telling my story, but at the same time I was also trying to give people the message that, you know, you're responsible for what you do, nobody else is. You can't expect someone else to go and get a job for you. You've got to change your own mindsets, but also to give a little bit, because mm. when you give a little bit to the people, sitting on a train, people ignore the person next to them, too busy on the phone swiping whatever they're doing on Tinder or whatever it is now. <laughs> Instead of looking at a person, their dream partner might be sat opposite them and they're mm. never going to know because they're not even looking up from their phones. Yeah. And I, I think we've become socially very um, segregated. We don't really engage anymore. And I, and I want the world to do that a little bit more. Last night there was a lot of love in that room. Mm. Yeah. What's but I know everyone went away feeling something, yeah. which is huge. Mm. What's your biggest regret? Not leaving earlier. You know, my children suffered unnecessarily and... 
I feel guilty about that. You know, I have worked through it, but my youngest son, he became homeless, you know, he became suicidal. He's not long come off the suicidal register. And he's the most beautifulest boy in the world in my eyes, you know, apart from my other son too, because no <laughs> favoritism here. But, you know, we all um, feel that we wish his life would have been very different had I've left earlier. He's an exceptionally astute person with his mind. He's just mm. so bright. And the other two have got careers of their own. And I know he'll find his path. I believe things are for a reason. They're not clear now, mm. but they will be. And he'll find his own voice. But I just would have preferred not to have made him suffer the way I did. So mm. parents, please think about your children and leave if you're in a bad situation. And mm. um, what's the most brutal life lesson you've ever had? The rape, you know. Um, I'm not going to lie. I, I fill up every time because it. I was just a very young innocent child and you know having a daughter myself knowing how she was at 14 you know I look at myself and I never got to have that I felt I feel my innocence was very much stolen from me yeah mm. this show is called disruptors <laughs> and you're very much disrupt I'm looking forward to seeing you disrupt the police and oh, yeah. disrupt all sorts of um, institutions that need a shake-up let Let's call it that way. What does that word disruptors mean to you? Change makers. I'm a yeah. change maker. I don't take no. I was told by someone very senior in Scotland Yard that I could not take the word honour killing away from the law sentence and I went and found a way. And I am a prime example of if you, you know, my daughter's going to laugh when I say this, but when someone says no to me, I'll make them say yes. Not mm. in a horrible way, not a forceful way, but through my love, through mm. my patience as well which is a huge necessity to be successful um with patience i know i can do that so mm. it means change makers <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because i say i have a little tagline movers shakers game changers and change makers so it's part of that and where should we follow you on what what platforms are you most active on where can we follow your activism and your work and where can we hire you as a coach yeah so i get thrown off twitter quite a lot so probably not the best you place. get thrown off yeah because i just say things where i put heads that have been um severed from bodies on there and they say oh, it's breaking i thought laws. twitter was the place where you could do that maybe rumbles for you maybe yeah <laughs> i've not got a rumble account should get one so you can find me on my website i'm on linkedin as well nina olk i'm known spell on it again N-I-N-A-A-O-U-I-L-K, every vowel except E. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have um, a Rumble account where I will get one. And you can find me on Instagram, London's Life Coach. Not as many followers as Rob, but maybe after this show I will have. <laughs> <laughs> and your book? My book's, as I said, it's called Master Your Life, Live the Life of Your Dreams, and it will change your life. And the first chapter's called Many. And right. I, I know it's one of my favourite chapters because it was written so well. Um, <laughs> even if I say so, I read it back once and I was like, this is really good. Oh, I wrote it myself. Mm. <laughs> and that's available on Amazon, but you can get it from my website or my Instagram. There's a link tree and you can find everything. I don't really know how to end this, Nina. It's... I want to end it with people leaving a comment. Oh, okay. And yeah. if they need help to also say if they've struggled and if they need help to come to my non-profit, which is called endhonorkillings.org, um, which you'll find on my link tree. Um, but I want people to be honest, if that's possible, with themselves and leave a comment. Let's leave it there then. Thank you, Nina. Thank you.